once again to the Perimeter Church Podcast. We are pleased to bring you the message from this week's worship service. For more information about this message, this week's teacher, and to watch or see other messages, please visit our website at perimeter.org. Thank you for joining us today. Good morning. Welcome to Perimeter Church. We're glad you're here with us. If you have been with us these past couple weeks, we've been in the middle of a series called Greater Love, where we've been looking at this love that Jesus shows his church, his people, this love that's unlike anything in this world, and yet this love that also that we as his sheep are supposed to embody. And this morning we're starting the first of three weeks where we're focusing on a particular emphasis of that love, God's care for the poor. Not just the spiritually poor, but the physically poor. This theme that runs all through the Bible that is in the Old Testament and the New, yet all too often gets neglected. And yet if you open up the Bible, it's everywhere. In Galatians 2, Paul says the apostles, when they heard of my ministry, they blessed it. They said, go, preach the gospel to the Gentiles. They said, don't forget this one thing. Do not forget the poor. The very thing Paul then says, I was eager to do. In James 1.27, James writes that religion that is pure and undefiled, religion that the Father loves, that causes his heart to sing, is to care for widows and orphans and their affliction. 1 John 3, John writes and he says that the mark of true belief of one who truly knows the love of God is that when he sees his brother in need and he has the ability to meet that need, he doesn't close his heart, but he gives freely and sacrificially. It's everywhere. It's all over the Bible. And the question that should immediately be in every single one of our hearts and minds is why? Why is this thing so vital to the people of God? Our text today, Psalm 113, I think gives the answer. Psalm 113 is what is called a Hallel Psalm. It's a psalm of praise celebrating God's deliverance of his people from slavery in Egypt. It's one of five, one that was sung every year at the Passover. The first two Hallel Psalms, Psalm 113 and Psalm 114, sung before the meal. And then the last three, Psalm 115 through 18, were sung directly after. A psalm that Jesus himself would have sung just moments before he ate his last meal with the disciples. A song that would have been on the lips of Jesus and all of the men who sat around that table just before Jesus took the bread and lifted it up and broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. Just moments before Jesus took the cup and held it up and said, this is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins, Jesus sang this, a psalm that tells us why this matters so much. Because care for the poor is a reflection of the very heart of God. And I want us to do something a little different as we start this morning. Normally, I would just read the text to you, but I want us to read this as it's intended to be read, with one voice as one body. And so read this text with me, Psalm 113, it'll be on the screen. Praise the Lord. 
Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. This is God's word. Let me pray for us. Father, we come as those who need eyes that only you can give to see and know who you are. And Lord, we pray as we come to this text, this text which tells us of a God who is more glorious and yet more tender than we would ever imagine or ever dream, Lord, we pray that you through your spirit would open wide our eyes and our ears and our hearts to you so that we would leave this place, Lord, not leaning on our own understanding or our own strength, but instead, Lord, as those who more fully than ever before have cast their full weight into the arms of the only one who can save, Jesus himself. Speak through me. Use me in my weakness. Bring your word to life in Jesus' name. Amen. I love this psalm. I, if any of you have been walking with the Lord for any period of time, you know, we all have those scriptures that because of experience, because of things that have happened are precious to us. This, this is one of those for me. This one's personal. A few, or last week, I got to experience one of the most privileged, beautiful things that a father in ministry could possibly experience. I got to baptize my twins up here on this stage. A moment that on its own is significant, but is even more significant than maybe most of you would know. When Mallory and I first started dating, one of the things that we bonded over was this. We loved kids. We wanted to be parents. We wanted to have children, to raise children, to love children, to have a house full of children. But when we first got married, I was in seminary, and we were, at least in our minds, not very stable and not very well off, and so we thought the best plan would be for us to wait. Get out of seminary, get a job, and then we would start trying, and then we would have kids, and everything would flow out in perfect sequence because that's how families are supposed to work, right? The problem was it didn't happen that way. I graduated seminary. I got a call to a church in Augusta, Georgia, but there was no baby. There was no pregnancy. And everywhere we looked, our friends were giving us birth announcements and announcing things on Facebook that they had a new arrival coming. And every month for us, we'd look at a stick and it would tell us yet again, there was still no child. And we knew that, you know, for some people it takes a little bit longer and so you don't always have much to worry about if it takes some time, but we thought, you know, it's been long enough that maybe, maybe we should get some things checked out, just, just in case. So we went to the doctor. They ran the initial battery of tests that they always run, and almost immediately they noticed something. 
something that they saw that they said, you know, this could be the reason, but we need to run some extra tests. And it could be that even in doing the test that we fix the problem. And so we left that time hopeful, thinking this actually sounds like good news. We went to the hospital. They called Mallory back from the waiting room into a room that I wasn't allowed to go in. And so I sat in the waiting room reading my Kindle thinking, this is not really a big deal. And then all of a sudden, the doors swung open and there was my wife. She was trembling. Her hands were shaking. And she was doing everything in her power to fight back tears. And when I asked her what was wrong, she said she would tell me when we got outside and we marched through the halls. And I remember racing to keep up and praying in my heart, Lord, I don't know what's about to happen. Give me wisdom in what to do. And as soon as we went out those hospital doors, my wife broke into tears and she said, here's what the doctors told me. Naturally, we are never going to conceive. And it was like a knife got rammed into my ribs. And as though right on cue, a friend of ours from church walked up holding two cups of coffee on his way inside to see his wife who had just given birth to their son. And the knife twisted. And we went home. And Mallory curled up on the couch and cried. And I got on the phone with my dad and I wept. Because I felt in a deeper, more acute way than I had ever felt before the poverty of this world. This world the psalmist speaks of, of dust and ashes, of barren women and starving children where we are poor sometimes because of things we have done and sometimes because of things that are completely outside of our control. This world that is not the way it is supposed to be. And it was in that place that I found this psalm. A psalm of praise to a God whose heart is not far from the poor but near. Who raises them from the dust and who makes barren women the mother of children. Of a God who in space and in time and in history reached down into this world and lifted his people from the ashes and did it not once, not twice, but over and over and over again. And the psalmist, he is calling to all who know this God, whether their times are good or bad, whether they are in sorrow or in joy, whether everything around them is going as they planned it to be or where everything is falling apart. And he says, here is the response that we all should have as those who know this God. Praise him. Praise him from this time forth forevermore. Praise him from the rising of the sun to its setting. Praise him, praise him, praise him, praise him because here is the God that you know. The one who, as he says in verse 5, is unlike any other. He is the one who sits above the heavens. And yet in his mercy and in his love descends into the very dust. A God we have seen perfectly in the person and the work of Jesus Christ.
We praise Him. We praise Him in good. We praise Him in bad. First, because He sits above the heavens. Look at these words in verses 4 to 6. The Lord is high of all nations and His glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God? Who is seated on high? Who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? The psalmist says, here's your God. He is the one who is above every single thing in this world. There is no one greater. There is no one more powerful. He is the one who sits above the heavens. Now, I don't know how attuned you are to American pop culture, but if you're attuned at all, there's a name that you're probably familiar with. A man by the name of Ta-Nehisi Coates. He won the National Book Award for his book, Between the World and Me. He's a recipient of the MacArthur Genius Grant, a man whose stuff has been published in the New Yorker and the New York Times, the New Republic, a man whose influence is about to be felt more widely than even before because he's one of the brains behind the comic book movie that's about to come out called Black Panther. He's a guy who gets attacked by people on the left and by people on the right, a guy that if you read him, which I think you should, because we shouldn't read things that just confirm what we already want to believe, he will make you nod your head, he will make you repent, and he will also make you vigorously disagree. And his area of expertise, the theme he comes back to over and over again is this. It is the state of race relations in America. And his experience as a black man in a world that he does not feel wants him very much. He's a man who looks out at the world and he sees a place where the powerful do not care for the powerless. A man who looks out and sees the wheels of justice not as something that's moving forward, but instead as something that's just spinning in the sand, always moving, never going. And when Stephen Colbert, in an interview he did just a couple months ago, asked him after hearing him talk about what he saw when he looked at America and this issue of race, and he said, do you have any hope any hope that this could be fixed, that America is at least on the right track, that this thing will finally be repaired, Taneshi Coates said one word, no. He said, I could say I have hope, but I'd be making it up. And the reason is this. As he says in one of the articles that he wrote, he has no hope because as he says, I have no gospel. I'm an atheist. I don't believe, as Martin Luther King did, that the arc of the universe bends towards justice. I don't believe in an arc. I believe in chaos. I don't know that it all ends badly, but I think, I think it probably does. He's a man who looks out at this world where the powerful are not inclined to help the powerless, where the wheels of justice just keep on spinning but never moving. And he feels like he is raising his fist and his voice and screaming out into an indifferent void where there's a slight chance that maybe he can move the ball a little bit forward, but in all likelihood, there is no assurance that it will do any good hopeless. How different 
the psalmist sounds. He's looking into the same world, that the same world where the powerful are not inclined to help the powerless, the same world where the wheels of justice are always spinning and sometimes don't feel as though they're moving forward. But the psalmist, he's not calling us to despair in the face of that world. Instead, he is calling us to praise because he looks out and he sees the nations mighty and powerful, breathing out their threats, and he also sees his God who is greater than every single one. He looks out at the sky at night, the vast expanse that when we stand underneath it absolutely overwhelms us with its flaming stars and its orbiting planets and he looks at it all and he says, I know one who overwhelms the very thing that overwhelms us, who is more glorious than they could ever dream of being, who sits on a throne so high above the heavens and the earth that as the text says here, and did you catch it? He has to look far down even to see it. The NIV puts it this way, God has to stoop to even see the heavens and the earth. He sees a God who sits in the heavens who is greater than every single thing that would threaten his people. And it's not just words, it's not a flight of fancy, it is a God who has revealed himself to his people time and again. A God who when Israel was enslaved in Egypt, in the arms of the most powerful nation in all the world, a nation whose gods were assumed to be more powerful than any other because their armies were more powerful than any other. A God who sent the absolute worst kind of savior he could send, a stuttering shepherd named Moses, who shows up in the courtroom of the most powerful man in the world and says, by the way, you should let these people go. And the Pharaoh says what most of the powerful do to the powerless, not a chance. And then this God, he sends plague after plague after plague after plague after plague. Every one of them revealing that while Egypt may be powerful, he is more powerful still. That while their gods may have stood up against the gods that exist in the rest of the world, he is the true God greater even than Pharaoh himself. A God who when his people were wandering through the desert in a place where there was no food and water and in human resources they would not have survived, a God who provides for them bread from heaven and water from the rock. A God who promised them this land in Canaan that would be theirs, a land that when they get there is inhabited by people who have fortified cities and modern weapons and existing alliances and all Israel has is this ragtag group that spent 40 years wandering through the desert. Their only weapons, the things they carried with them from Egypt 40 years before. It's not a fair fight, except for one thing. The one who sits above is on the side of God's people. The psalmist says, here's your God. Though all the world rise up against us, Though all the heavens and the earth shout their defiance, there is one who stands behind his people who is greater than them all because he sits on a throne higher than any other. Far too often, if I'm really honest, if we are honest, I may confess this with my lips, 
But in my heart, I feel a whole lot more like Tanahisi Coates. Because I forget. I forget the one who sits above. I forget the one who is greater than anything in this world, and it is revealed in this. I'm afraid, and I'm worried, and I'm anxious. And the psalmist, he looks out at our hearts, all of them like his own, so prone to fear and so prone to worry, and he points his finger to the heavens and says, you see all this? There's one who sits far above all of that, and he is your God. But that, that alone is not a reason to praise. The psalmist says he's not just the one who sits above the heavens. This God is the one who descends into the very dust to make the poor rich and to make the barren fruitful. Look at verses 7 to 9. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home, making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. You know, I haven't spent a lot of time with kings. I'm assuming most of us haven't. Uh, in fact, I haven't spent a lot of time with very many powerful people but I am sure of this, you don't often find kings down in the dust. Maybe for a photo op, maybe to break ground on some building, but usually it's in a pristine suit, bending down, giving the thumbs up, and then they hand the shovel to somebody else who will get dirty, and then they walk away. That's not the God of Israel. This is a God whose kingdom, whose throne is far above all the heavens, and yet right here, The psalmist tells us he lives in the dust. He's a God who buries his arms in the dust and the grime and the brokenness of this world for the good of those who are so poor that the only way they can keep warm at night is to bury themselves in the ashes of fires that have recently gone out. That's the image, to lift the needy from the ash heap. A God who so cares for the least of these that he comes near to women. Women in a culture where if you are not able to produce children, you have no value. Your place in your home is tenuous. The affections of your husband are questionable. Women who all their days would walk around cloaked in shame and God comes near. And as the text says, he doesn't just make them mothers, he makes them the joyous mothers of children. Praise the Lord. And he does it, not just for the deserving poor, not for the righteous poor. He does it for the undeserving and the unrighteous, even those like you and me. And you see it all over the Bible. The very people that God lifts from the dust, that he brings out of Egypt and he gives a land and he makes them princes in the land, they're the same people who again and again and again turn their backs on the very God who saved them. To such a degree that the language of scripture is that they become spiritual adulterers. A people who are married to God and yet with their hearts continue to pursue other lovers and are constantly running from them and yet God, 
Even though they're becoming poor because of choices they are making, God keeps chasing them down. He keeps burying his arms in the dust. He keeps lifting them out. They may be unfaithful, but he is constantly, always faithful. He's the God who comes to barren women, women like Rachel, and he makes them the mother of Joseph and of Benjamin. Women like the wife of Manoah, whose name is lost, but whose son's name we have not forgotten, a little guy named Samson. He's a God who comes to women like Hannah, who cried out in the temple that God would give her a child, a woman whose prayer is actually being echoed here by the psalmist, and he makes her the mother of the last and the greatest of the judges, Samuel. A God who comes to Elizabeth, an old woman who has given up hope of ever having a child and makes her the mother of John the Baptist. A God who comes even to Sarah. A woman who when she hears that God is going to give her a child, she laughs because she's 90 years old and her body is as good as dead. And God's response is to say, not only am I giving you a child, but from your child will come one who will be the savior of the world. It is a God who over and over and over again in his mercy and in his love descends into the very dust that the poor and the needy spiritually and physically would be lifted out. And nowhere do we see it more clearly than in Jesus. Because in Jesus, in Jesus we have the one who descends into the dust, not just in spirit, but in living, breathing flesh and blood. In Jesus we have the one who enters into a line of barren women who have been made fruitful by the hand of God and God alone, of one who had all riches and all comfort and all power, who sat in heaven on a throne far above the heavens and the earth, and yet he descended into a family of such poverty that his parentage was always suspect in the eyes of the world, where ends turned them away, where it seems as though scripture would suggest his father dies when he is still very young, a man who knew only riches and only holiness and perfection and entered into a world of poverty that he felt acutely in every single way, and yet who with every breath preached mercy not just to the spiritually poor, but the physically poor. He takes lepers, these men and women forced to live on the outskirts of society who cannot even have that most basic of things, human touch. And Jesus comes to them and he wraps them in his arms and he says, be clean, and they are clean. And the people who are outside are brought back in. He's the one who comes to the lame who are lying by the side of the road and are begging for their food because there's no other way they can eat because they cannot work. And he lifts them to their feet not just so that they would walk, but that they would be made whole, and they would run, and they would dance, and be restored in full. He's a God who, when his people were hungry, a crowd of 5,000 and 4,000, he takes a few loaves and a few fishes, and he feeds them, not just to the point where they feel kind of eh about it. He so fills them that they can't eat anymore and there are baskets full of food left over. 
He is a God who enters into the dust and the grime of this world that the poor would be raised, that bellies would be filled, that not just souls but bodies would be made whole. And it is this Jesus, it is this Jesus who right before his last meal, before he breaks the bread and drinks the wine, it's this Jesus who takes this psalm on his lips of a God who sits above the heavens and descends into the dust to save his people and who sings it with his disciples at the very moment that he is preparing to descend not just into the dust but into death itself. As he's preparing to go deeper than the dust so that you and I not the deserving poor, but the undeserving, would be raised not to be seated with earthly princes, but as it says in Ephesians 2, to be seated with him in the heavenly places. So far above the heavens and the earth, we would have to look far down. This is the heart of God. This is who he is. He is a God whose heart so beats for the poor that though he sits on high, he takes all of that power and he enters into the dust that we would be swept up and to share with him in his glory and in his riches. Mallory and I, our stories of infertility is longer than I have time to share here. And if you have questions, I'd love to talk to you about it. But I can tell you this. When I came home one night from work, and found my wife had made this really ornate meal where on this chalkboard was written a menu where every single item on the menu was some play on the word baby. And I realized what was happening. I wept. I wept. I cried through that meal. And when my daughter, my oldest daughter, Mary Neal, was born, and I could see her face for the first time, I wept even harder still, and not controlled manly tears, but very uncomfortable sobbing tears that made you want to look away. And I didn't care. I didn't care. Because in that moment, in the very place where I felt the poverty of this world so fully, so deeply and acutely, I also felt the tender mercy of this God and all I wanted to do was praise. But here is where this text is a comfort. Why it was a comfort, not just in that moment and not after, but even before, it's because of this. Even if God said no, even if he didn't give us a child, even if Mary Neal never ended up in my arms, I would know this, it would not be because God does not care. And it would not be because he is not going to redeem. Because while the plans and the purposes of God are often a mystery, his heart, his heart never is. And the promise of the gospel is that the same hands that lifted us in Jesus, 
the same hands that lift us now, the same hands that will one day lift us again, it will be those hands who when Jesus returns, it will be those hands that take our faces and hold them fast and wipes every tear from our eyes and ushers us into a place where there is no more mourning and no more death and no more sadness and no more poverty. A place where the only cry of God's people will always and forevermore be this, praise. You want to know why Paul does not want to forget the poor? Why it is that religion that is pure and undefiled is to care for widows and orphans? It's because that is religion that reflects the very heart of God. And how else can we, as those who have received such mercy, as those who have felt those hands pluck us from the dust and lift us up, how can we not respond in praise, not just with our lungs, but with our lives? How can we not join the arms of our God in heaven who bends down and bury ourselves with him in the dust for the sake of others if we know that he did it for us even when we didn't deserve it? This, this is the tragedy. This is the tragedy that Jeff and Bob are going to touch on more fully in the weeks to come. The tragedy that over the past hundred years, this has been a song of praise that was largely lost in the evangelical church. At the turn of the 20th century, when the mainline churches begin to drift from the biblical gospel and begin to say that Jesus isn't the only way to be saved, that he may not even be God and he may not have existed and he may not have been born of a virgin or raised again, and begin to preach a gospel that cared only for the body and not for the soul, the evangelical church course corrected in this direction. They said, we're going to hold on to those biblical truths and we are going to preach a gospel that in no way sounds like theirs one that will minister to the soul, but not so much to the body. And in our fear of a liberalized gospel, we settled for a spiritualized one. A distorted gospel that said, as long as we keep proclaiming the word, we don't have to join God and put our arms in the dust. That said, as long as we're faithful in evangelism, we don't have to concern ourselves with civil rights. If you don't believe me, go back and look at how many evangelicals actually marched with Martin Luther King. It was not very many. That as long as we keep preaching the word faithfully week in and week out, we can flee the cities and fly to the suburbs and hide ourselves from the poverty therein. And we took Two things that God, with his very heart and soul, held together, and we divorced them. Now I realize, I know what's in everyone's hearts right now. You're saying, well, that wasn't me. I was either very young or I was not alive. That wasn't my actions. That wasn't my thoughts. But I would say two things. First, The God of the Bible does not just hold us accountable for things we have done. He holds us accountable for what we have not done. All you need to do is look at Matthew 25. But two, while we may not have been the ones who actively did that, it is our inheritance. 
It's the family system in which we all swim, and the current is still strong. Psalm 113 would call us back. It would call us back to a God whose heart for the poor beats so mightily he would descend from on high to enter into the very dust, even into death itself, that the poor would be saved. Whose promise is not just for souls that will be raised, but bodies made glorious. And the only response to a God like that is praise. Not just with our lungs, but with our lives. Let's read the psalm together one more time. Praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is high above all nations and his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who looks far down on the heavens and the earth? He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes, with the princes of his people. He gives the barren woman a home making her the joyous mother of children. Praise the Lord. Amen. And pray for us. Father, you are the one who in love and in mercy, though seated on high, you sent your son into the very depths to enter into the muck and the mire, to take our shame, to take our sin and to take this broken world that is not the way it is supposed to be and to usher us into one that is as you created it and intended it to be. Lord, I pray, give us hearts that mirror your own. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to the Perimeter Church podcast. Perimeter Church is located at the corner of Highway 141 and Old Alabama Road in Johns Creek, Georgia. Please visit our website at www.perimeter.org for more information, to give us your feedback, and find other messages from our teaching team. Thanks for making this podcast a part of your day.